Good morning. It's great to be with you all here. I, the last time I was here, you were over in Dira City Center. This is a much larger and brighter hall. Praise God for his provision for you all as a church. We at the other end of town there in Jebel Ali pray for you guys often. We love you and want to support you in any way that we can. It is a great joy for us to be planning and praying and thinking about partnering together in planting a church in Ras al-Khaimah. We rejoice to see the gospel advancing on the Arabian Peninsula and we are delighted in our partnership together to that end. So we love you. We pray for you. That church there in Jebel Ali, UCCD, they're, they're gathering even now, just beginning. And uh, they will be praying for you this morning in the same way that you all have prayed for us. Isn't it wonderful to know that even in a place like this, there is a, a community of believers and a partnership and love between gospel, preaching, evangelical churches. Uh, God is working in this place, and we delight in that. I also recently returned from Lucknow as Pastor Dave prayed for Zion Ministries. Got to spend about 10 days with Harshit and with Shaker and Pastor Raleigh there in North India. Uh, they are doing wonderful, intentional, uh, important gospel ministry there that is very effective. So I delight to bring back just a, another wonderful report from them. They're doing well. Happy is healing well from her self-imposed injury. <laughs> she accidentally cut herself with a knife as she was peeling fruit. Uh, and uh, what seems like a small thing uh, because of, of the level of care that's available to her there actually became quite a, a big thing. So continue to pray for her as she heals there and also prepares to give birth to a child here in just a couple of weeks. Their, their, their third child is due at the beginning of September. So keep them in your prayers. This morning we're going to be in John, the Gospel of John, uh, as you have been for the past several weeks here at Redeemer. We're going to be in John chapter 11, John chapter 11. So if you would turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to John chapter 11 and let me bring us into this text by asking a question of, of each of us. And the question is this, have you, have you ever experienced a cliffhanger moment? Or maybe I should ask, do you even know what a cliffhanger moment is? What is a cliffhanger moment? It's, it, is a, it is a moment of suspense. A moment of suspense. Hollywood and Bollywood and all the other woods, they make their money off of bringing us to these moments of suspense. And then they cut off the season, you know. You ever uh, watched like the TV show Lost or any of these popular TV shows where they, they bring you right up to the climax and... and and leave you then with just this profound sense of mystery. They leave you wondering, well, what's going to happen now? I think we've all experienced cliffhanger moments in our lives. I can, I can remember one very clear cliffhanger moment personally in my life. It was a day that I got up early and I, I bathed myself, as everyone should when you get up. And uh, I made sure I smelled right and looked uh, respectable and presentable. And I got in my car and I drove out of the city I was living in, out into the suburbs of this town, this big city. And I drove up to the house of a respected, well-known man in my church. 
He was a very successful businessman. He was an accountant responsible for large sums of money for one of the most successful corporations in the United States. And when you walk into his house, everything that you're confronted with when you walk through the door uh, testifies to the success of this man, and it's very intimidating. You walk through the front door and you think, now this is a man who has a well-ordered home. He is prosperous. His wife met me at the, the door, greeted me, and brought me in. Uh, past all the sort of monuments to his success and set me down at his large, well-polished dining room table. She offered me something to drink, of which I drank zero, because I was way too nervous just being in the presence of this man. And I sat down, and uh, I was seated at one end of the table. It's a large table. And he came in the room... You know, with a sense of austere walking in. And he walked around all the way to the other end of the table. He didn't sit next to me. He sat at the other end of the table. So I was staring at him down the length of this table. He sat in the seat of power and he looked down at me. I felt sure that they had somehow lowered my chair. (laughs) So I was looking at this man and he was there at the other end of the table. And uh, he asked me some questions, and I stumbled through answers. Uh, lunch was broad, and the conversation was awkward, and I'm sure, I was sure this was going to be the worst mistake of my life. And I sat there, and finally, the moment of truth came, and I knew I, I couldn't back down. I couldn't waver in this moment. I looked at this powerful man at the other end of the table and said, Sir, I did have something I wanted to ask you. I would like your permission to ask your daughter to marry me. And there was silence. He just looked at me, stared at me. And I know it it must not have been hours. It felt like an eternity passed in those moments as I waited for the answer, as I looked at that man. That is a moment of suspense. That is a cliffhanger moment. Everything inside of me was screaming, what is he going to say? What is going to happen next? Well, as we look at John chapter 11, that is the moment that we're in here. You see, we are standing in a crowd. We're standing in a large crowd of people. Many of the people that are standing around us, if you can imagine yourself in this scene, many of the people standing around us have tear-stained faces. And there's that, that quiet, hushed sob of people who have just recently been mourning a great loss. We are standing in a great crowd that is gathered around a grave, a tomb. Now, some of the people that we're standing with are there and their faces are stained with tears because they have known in the past couple of days great loss and great personal tragedy. A friend, a brother has died. Others who are standing there have just come because they have been paid to mourn the death of this man. And others are there because it is a curious thing. They're wondering, why has the whole town gathered once again before the tomb of Lazarus? Why is everybody here? What's all the commotion? 
A sense of mystery and expectancy hangs in the air. You can feel it as you stand there before this tomb. And then look down at chapter 11, verse 43. Jesus prays aloud. And when he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Now that is a cliffhanger moment. I'm sure the minds of everyone gathered around the mouth of that tomb were spinning in overdrive wondering, would a dead man respond to the command of Jesus to come out? Well, let's stop here at this moment in time and make three observations that will help us just process everything that happens here in John chapter 11. We're going to make three observations this morning. First, we're going to observe the silence of the crowd. So if you're taking notes, which is a good idea, this is the outline. First, we'll observe the silence of the crowd. Second, we'll observe the silence of the grave. And third, we will listen to the voice of Jesus. The silence of the crowd, the silence of the grave, the voice of Jesus. And the first observation that we want to make right here, right at verse 43, we want to stop and observe that here the crowd is silent. Here they are in the text, they are voiceless. And the reason why that's an observation we can make is because throughout the rest of the chapter before verse 43, the crowd has been so loud. They have been so full of human wisdom, so full of advice. Let's quickly go back, just back up and take a survey. Listen to the, the vocalness of the crowd. Look at verse 8 of chapter 11. As Jesus hears the news that his friend Lazarus has fallen ill... He makes a plan to slowly make his way back towards Bethany. And as he tries to take one step towards Bethany, his disciples weigh in with their sage advice about what he should do. And they say, oh no, Jesus, you cannot go back there. Look at verse 8. Why? Because the Jews of that town tried to stone you. Don't you know, Jesus, that this does not make good public relations sense at all? You go to where there is demand, not to where they want to put you to death. Don't go back to Bethany. It will be the end. You can read about how the Jews of that town just very recently tried to stone Jesus in John chapter 10. Jesus claims to be one with God. That the people of God are His people, that the sheep of God are His sheep, and that His sheep will listen to His voice because God in heaven had given them to Him. And the Jews responded there in the town of Bethany by picking up rocks to try to stone Jesus to death. So His disciples respond with their advice. Don't go at all. 
They might have been thinking, surely if you want your friend to be healed, you can just heal him from here. You don't have to go back to that place. Maybe they were afraid for their own lives. One of those rocks might hit me. I'm allergic to rocks. Listen to the voice of the disciples. Don't go there. The Jews tried to stone you. As he got closer and arrived back in Bethany, he was greeted with one of Lazarus's sister, with Martha, who came and in a sort of despairing and yet accusing way, in verse 21, look at what she said to Jesus. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, wrapped up in those words, can't you just feel the sense of sorrow and despair and loss? Oh, Lord, why did you not come sooner? Because if you had been here, my brother would still be with us. He would not have died. What went wrong with your plans? What took you so long Why weren't you here when we needed you the most? Wrapped up in this statement is the accusation. Oh Lord, you may be powerful, but maybe in that moment, are you good? You could have healed my brother, but you didn't. The advice of the disciples, the accusation of Martha, the whole crowd joins in here at the mouth of the tomb in verse 37. Look down at verse 37, where we find the multitude assembled saying, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Questioning the very integrity of of Jesus questioning his integrity because how is it that this man can become the one who chooses between giving sight to the blind and then healing the sickness of Lazarus how is it that he can choose to heal some but not others there is a lack of integrity in Jesus could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have healed this man We have Jesus' wisdom questioned. We have Jesus' goodness questioned. We have Jesus' integrity questioned. Verse 39, lastly, we see Jesus' common sense is questioned. Jesus calls for the stone to be rolled away from the mouth of the tomb. And what do the people say? Look at verse 39. We cannot open this tomb. By this time, there is a bad odor. Surely you, you must know this. It's been four days and bodies after that time, they will smell bad. Surely we cannot open this tomb. By this time there is a bad odor for he has been there four days. Jesus, you just don't have common sense. You don't have wisdom. You don't have goodness. You don't have integrity and you don't have common sense. These people have been a very argumentative lot, haven't they? They've been very vocal all throughout this chapter. It's part of our nature, 
isn't it? It's part of our heart. We humans are an argumentative lot. We like to imagine that we can give God some good counsel, some good advice. Maybe we could give God some valuable, critical feedback. God, if you really are concerned with doing what is best for me, you will provide me with this and this and this and this. God, if you really love me, then you would never let this happen to me. Don't we? When the chips are down, when life isn't going our way, don't we sometimes in the deepest corners of our heart question whether or not God is being good to me? Or whether or not God is being fair to me? Don't we sometimes look across the aisle at some more prosperous Christian and question, why? Is God being unfair to give that person this thing that I so desperately want? Do you argue or bargain with God? Do you ever find yourself saying, God, I'll do this for you if you do this for me? Do you ever utter that prayer that is the prayer of every student getting ready to sit down to write an exam? You all remember this prayer, I'm sure. Even the most irreligious, atheistic student, sometimes before an exam will think, well, God, if you are there, if you just let me pass this test, I will do anything. I will be the best Christian ever. I will always go to church. I will pray every day. Just let me pass this test. God, if you do this for me, I will do that for you. Now, Gathered here all together in this gathering of the church on Friday morning. Probably not many of us are going to be quick to admit to often thinking that way or feeling that way. But how often would our consciences testify against us? It is a picture of our human arrogance. It shows us, like looking into a mirror, the condition of our heart. We evaluate or elevate ourselves to that sort of supreme position. We try to sit on God's throne and we place ourselves in judgment over God Himself. But, friends, we don't fit on that throne, we can't wear God's shoes. They're too big for us. We don't have God's wisdom. We do not have God's goodness. We do not have God's power. We are not ultimate. Friend, you are not God. And we are not in a position to stand in judgment over Him. Here, at the mouth of the tomb, we are confronted with the end of all human arguments. We are confronted with the end of all human criticisms, because here at the grave, when confronted with death, we reach the limit of human wisdom, who has mastered death, and come back around from the other side to say, yes, I have the secret formula. Steve, 
jobs for all of his brilliance. He makes us all these wonderful gadgets. He couldn't find a loophole around death. It claimed him, surely as it has claimed millions and millions that went before him, surely as it will claim all of us. Here in this critical moment, when confronted with the end of human wisdom, nobody has anything else to say. And all of the mouths here are silenced. Now, my friends, guests, those of you who came here because you're just investigating Christianity and you have not yet chosen to follow Christ, maybe you've come here as a skeptic. The difficult truth, and yet the honest and loving truth is that there will come a time when the mouths of all skeptics will be silenced. And what we see here in John chapter 11 is Jesus stepping up and pleading. The reason why He does this miracle, the reason why He comes to the mouth of this tomb, the reason why He orders events as He does to bring everybody together in front of this tomb is so that the mouths of the skeptics will be silenced now before it's too late. Look at the prayer that Jesus prayed before He commanded Lazarus to come out of the tomb. He looked up and says, the text says in verse 41, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus is calling all of these skeptics. Jesus is calling all of you skeptics. Believe. Believe. He commands Lazarus to come out and then he confronts them with the reality of his power. In my experience, I find that people are skeptics not for love of knowledge, but for lack of knowledge. People are skeptical of the claims of Christ, not because they have spent much time considering them, but because they have no idea what He has claimed. Skepticism is one thing when you're skeptical of the accuracy of the radars on Sheikh Zayed Road. Skepticism is one thing when you're skeptical of the health and the nutritional content of a McDonald's Big Mac. But when you stand before God and say, I'm not sure if I can believe you, that is a statement that needs to be carefully considered and weighed, doesn't it? I mean, if you are going to reject God outright, if you are going to bring accusation to Him, shouldn't you pause and think about whether or not that is a good idea? Shouldn't you consider what he has to say before you turn a skeptic's back to him. 
Skepticism is one thing when it's a small thing that you're skeptical of. But if you decide to be skeptical of the author of life and the creator of the universe, oh, friend, skeptic who's here this morning, pause to consider that. Carefully consider the claims of Christ. Carefully consider the condition of your own life and the state of the world. Oh friend, if you're here this morning as a skeptic, let me urge you to, with an open mind, get together with a believer in this place, one of the elders of this church, Pastor Dave. Come and see me after the service. Find a time to sit together Read through this Gospel of John. Read through the Gospel of Mark. Consider the claims of Christ. Well, we've noticed that here at the mouth of the grave, the crowd is silent. But another profound truth is that here at the mouth of the grave, there is another silence that we can observe as well. I want us to second observe... The silence of the grave. The silence of the grave. You see, we hear a lot of voices throughout John chapter 11, but whose is the one voice that we don't hear from? We don't hear the voice of Lazarus. You see, there was no pounding on the inner wall of that stone cave. There was no thunk, thunk, thunk. I'm in here. I think I might be dead. Somebody get help. I don't know what you're going to do. Death, friends, is the ultimate expression of inability. You can do nothing, and there's nothing that you can do about it. And we don't really like to think about death, do we? Yet it is one of the things that we all have in common. And when we do think about death, we often only think about physical death, which is really but a shadow, a sign pointing to a far greater spiritual reality. You see, Ephesians chapter 2 in the New Testament of the Bible, it calls our attention to where we should find ourselves here in John chapter 11. In Ephesians chapter 2, we read this, As for you, You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts like the rest. We were by nature Objects of wrath. That verse washes over us like a a splash of ice cold water in the face. You want to know why I never had to sit down with my sons and teach them how to fight with one another? No one ever had to give you disobedience lessons. Anger and spite seems to roll off of our tongue, our newspapers. Throughout the centuries of mankind, the headlines have been filled with war, anger, abuse, violence, corruption, greed. 
It is because by nature we are dead in sin. We have cut ourselves off from the author of life. We are apart from knowing King Jesus, the dead body in the grave. By nature in sin, our souls dead. The real tragedy of death is in the separation that it causes. Spiritual death, which is the condition that by nature we all find ourselves in, has separated us from God. And the evidence of this fact is all around us. We are dead souls with dying flesh. Now, I ask you, have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt that? I'm not asking you, If you've ever known that, that is an important question. But right now I want you to ask yourself, have I ever felt the silent desperation of the grave? Have I ever felt the reality that my soul, my life apart from God is doomed? Have I ever felt that death On the inside, has the reality ever sobered me or broken my heart? You see, you will not rejoice and you will not cling to the Savior until you know and feel the desperation of the grave. You will not rejoice. You will not cling to the Savior until you know and feel the desperation of the grave. For several summers as a young man, as a teenager, I served both in secondary school and in university. I was a lifeguard. And this summer pool that I served, I I stationed on this tall stand like they have at the beaches here. And my job was to stand there and protect all the, the little goofy kids that were running around in the pool. And they like to do crazy things that would endanger their lives. And my job was to stand up in the most authoritative way that I could, blow my whistle and scream at them. I was there to protect them. I was their life guard to safeguard their lives. You know what never happened to me as a lifeguard? Not one of those little foolish kids ever came up to me and said, Oh, John. We thank you for the way that you put yourself on the line. You sit there on that stand and you watch us and you bake in the sun. You risk skin cancer for us every day. We love you and we thank you. No one even ever offered to buy me a bottle of Mountain Dew. Not only did they not offer me expressions of love, but... They did the opposite. They would wait until I was distracted looking one way and then they would break a rule on the other side. They knew that it was against the rule for them to run around the edge of the pool. And so they would do this sort of half run, half walk type thing. They would get right up to the edge of what was acceptable. They didn't love me and the fact that I wanted to safeguard their life. They wanted to see how much they could get away with. 
Sometimes they would be smart in their diversionary tactics. They would start a little fight at one end of the pool just so that the other one could do this illegal dive off the diving board. As I was looking this way, they would break the rules that way. They didn't love me. Why? They didn't feel like their life was in danger. But when you hit the water and you sink down below where you can get up from, and when you realize that hope is lost for you, and as that water starts to enter your lungs and you come face to face with the sobering reality that I am drowning here, And in that moment when you feel like all hope is lost, when you feel the strong arms of the lifeguard wrap his arms around you and bring you back up to the surface, when you feel him bring you back to the side and clear that water from your lungs and as you take that breath and realize that life is mine now, you cling to the lifeguard. You don't let anything rip him away from you. In fact, when I was being trained as a lifeguard, they would actually teach us how to get drowning victims off of you because when you grab them, they would try to grab you so tight they would suffocate you and drown you both. Now someone who is drowning clings to his Savior because he knows... There is my life. All I have is in Him. If I lose Him, I lose everything. You will not cling to the Savior until you feel the silent desperation of the grave. And when you have known the embrace of a Savior, you cling to Him. You sing for joy. Why do churches sing? It's such an unusual thing for everybody to stand up and face the same direction and sing words on a screen. We don't sing for nothing. We sing because we have been saved. We sing for joy because we have a great Savior. We've seen the silence of the crowd, the silence of the grave. And now with great joy, we come to the voice of Jesus, the author of life, the one who spoke, let there be light, and there was light, the one who called the separation of the waters below from the waters above and created our atmosphere, and the one who spoke and trees came from the ground, the one who breathed in the breath of life to the shapeless form of man and the dust of the ground, as the very one who spoke the universe into existence stands at the mouth of this tomb and utters in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus doesn't have a choice. He didn't say, Lazarus, what do you think? The dead obeys the command of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who is beyond His authority. Who can escape from Him? Who is powerful enough to Stand resolute in disobedience. 
Sickness obeyed Christ. The wind and the waves obeyed Christ. Lazarus obeyed Christ. He came hobbling out of that tomb, wrapped in the same grave clothes, heart beating once again. The author of life had called him. Now, loved ones, fellow followers of Christ, I want you just to consider, just quickly, if you know Jesus this morning, that is exactly how it happened for you. You didn't call out to him. He called out to you. On that day, when you came face to face with silent desperation and recognized your need for a Savior, He brought that light and life into your soul. As the song said, My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed Thee. Here at the mouth of this tomb, the very power of the cross is revealed. Here at the mouth of this tomb, we see a picture of God's plan to rescue sinful and rebellious people, people like me, people like you. Here at the mouth of the tomb, we are pointed to where hope is found. You see, loved ones, God has been pointing mankind to His salvation throughout our history. As we read earlier from Isaiah 25, hundreds of years before Jesus stood at the mouth of Lazarus' tomb, we read, The Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. On this mountain He will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow death forever. The Sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of His people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Friend, your only hope is found in the promise that God has made to destroy death, to forgive our sins, and to bring us back to Him. And the really good news, loved ones, is that this is a promise that God has kept. The promise to overthrow death, the promise to destroy its iron grip on mankind, to remove the shroud that enfolds all peoples and covers all nations, has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He came into the world He created. He jumped into the deep end. He came into the world filled with drowning people, people drowning in their own rebellion. He came to rescue us from death's power. Death's power has been destroyed by Jesus, the eternal Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God, not because He was born to God like my sons were born to me, but because Jesus is one with the Father. He came to us from God, clothed in human flesh, yet fully God and fully man. He came to offer Himself to be a substitute for us unto death, to stand in our place 
and bear the just wrath of God for our rebellion to take our place for any who would repent of their rebellion and trust in Him. And He paid death's price in full, declaring on the cross, It is finished. And He now leads all who come to Him to life. For He declares, as we see here in John chapter 11, verse 25, I am I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. The critical truth, the point of this whole passage, this whole chapter is here in verse 25 and 26. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. In Jesus Christ, the curse of sin to hold us in the steel grip of death is destroyed. So the question before us all this morning is, who is King Jesus to you? Who is King Jesus to you? Do you know Him as your Savior? Or do you know Him as your encyclopedia? You see, my fear is that many of you might know about Him in the same way that you can know about the Niagara Falls from reading about it and looking at pictures on the internet or reading about it on Wikipedia. Sure, you can go onto the website and realize that the Niagara Falls is there in Canada. It's one of the few things that they have that's really cool. (laughs) You can read about how many liters of water plummet over the side of that that precipice and crash down. You can can see sights, pictures of it. You can even, if you go to Wikipedia, you can even see a little video clip of a little tugboat there at the bottom, you know, taking people up to get sprayed by all the... But until you have been there and stood at the edge by that little metal uh, railing and you kind of leaned over and felt the spray on your face and heard the rush of the water, you have not experienced Niagara Falls until you've been there. You won't be struck in wonder at what it is until you've stood there face to face with it. Now, do you know Christ in the way that somebody could know about Jesus by learning some facts about him? Or do you know Him? You have been called to know Him, to cling to Him. To confess your dependence and need. Not for a moral reformer. Not for a life improvement coach. But your need for a Savior. Someone who loved you and gave himself for you. Is that the Jesus that you know? If you do know him, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death 
is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. There are only two points of application for this text. And one is just simply adoration. If you have been saved by the Savior, adore Him. Worship Him. Throw off the sin in your life that keeps you from seeing Him. Fix your eyes on Him and run with perseverance the race before you. He is your rescuer, your redeemer, your savior. Adore Him. And the second point of application is for those of you who don't yet know that kind of salvation. Oh, friend, repent of your desire to save yourself. You cannot. And come to Christ Jesus. Turn to Him, the one who overthrows the power of death and leads all who follow Him to life. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that You would be at work doing those things in our hearts even now cause those of us who know Christ to grow in our affection for Him so that when we behold the temptations of this world, they will look like garbage to us in comparison with the glory of knowing Christ Jesus. And Father, I pray that You would be doing that same Lazarus kind of work in the hearts of some here this morning who came in this room perhaps not even knowing that they needed a Savior. Oh, Father, I pray that you would open their eyes, call them to life, call them out from the tomb in the same way that Jesus called Lazarus. I pray that there would be some in this room even now who would see their need for a Savior. Oh, Father, guide us in life that we may cling to Christ Jesus, our Savior and Lord. We are great sinners, but He is a great Savior. Let us trust in Him. In Jesus' name, amen.